The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. You'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. The following segment is sponsored by Xterra Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange, under the symbol XAG.V, Xterra plans to become a mid-tier producer of silver and base metals through the development of its Bilbao deposit located in the central Mexican mineral belt in the state of Zacatecas, as well as through additional exploration and acquisition opportunities. Find Xterra on the web at xterra.ca. Join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the silver guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is TheMorganReport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Well, it's great to be back. Now, you forwarded me a comment from one of your subscribers for discussion on today's broadcast. And the comment is certainly something we've touched on before in earlier conversations. Let me just read the comment from subscriber Colin. Hi, David. Enjoying your basic plus membership. I've been reading Martin Armstrong's website. Martin has some strong views that make sense. Gold won't go up until 2015, 2016. The dollar will get a lot stronger in coming years. The S&P likely to double in the next three years. And he's certainly not a hyperinflation believer. Could you maybe do a podcast about where you and Martin agree and disagree on these issues? Thanks. David, what are your thoughts? First of all, I have read Martin Armstrong's website. I certainly wouldn't say I've read it in its entirety. I have not. Also, I'd mention that uh, the Liberty Forum that I did in Dallas, Martin was one of the guests. Unfortunately, I guess he had some issues and couldn't make it physically, but he did come on a podcast. One, let me state, I think he's very well respected, as he should be, and a very good, deep thinker, and he's got a lot of insights into monetary issues. So I'm attack him one at a time. Gold going up. Now, I don't know his exact work, but in the context of what I think and what our work shows, I agree. What I mean by that, and more specifically, is let's just revisit the last bull market. If you've looked at some of my work, and I think he's a basic plus member, so he's probably seen some of the videos. And I've been repeating what Jeff Christian said early on in the bull market, that 90% of the move comes in the last 10% of the time. And I kind of parroted that. I, I knew we had a huge move in the last part of the time, but I didn't really know what the numbers were. And I actually did a whole presentation on that and determined that I think it was 87% of the move came in the last 7% of the time. Not to pick hairs, I just didn't do the arithmetic. I have done it since, and I think that's the exact numbers. But the idea that 90% of the move comes in the last 10% of the time. So this could be totally acceptable to my thinking that we could move higher in through 2014 and higher into 2015, but in 2000, say at the end of 2015, I think someone told me it was, 2015.75, which would mean the fourth quarter 2015, and I don't know how far he projects it out into 2016, where you'll get the final peak. But this would be very similar to the way one markets move. I mean, if you look at the tech bubble, 
how it moves, you look at the housing bubble, you look at all those type of markets, any market really, once it gets very, very extremely overbought, it accelerates rapidly. So doesn't mean that the metals will be flat until that time. And I don't know what he thinks, but what I think, and you're asking what I think, what I think is that you'll see them work their ways higher. I think we're going to you know, get to 26 on silver this year after being as high as 48. In 2014, work even higher, work higher into 2015. And then at this, whatever that trigger point is, and no one really knows, I think Martin says he does, and perhaps he does. I won't argue that. Time will tell. Whatever that point is, and you get this huge acceleration. So going back to the 1980s bull market, silver started in 1979 around $6 and ended January 19th at 50 so you made eightfold on your money in the last year of time if that was about a 15-year bull market. So if this is a similar 15, 16-year bull market, will you get that last eightfold increase in the last year's time? I don't know. But what I am suggesting is that's how the market moved last time. I think we see something similar this time. So I would say we somewhat agree. My time frame for the peak is around that time frame. So let's leave it at that. The next point in the comment was... The dollar will get a lot stronger in the coming years. The S&P likely to double in the next three years. Certainly not a hyperinflation believer. First of all, I don't rule anything out. There's a lot of gold believers, gold bugs, you might say, that are, you know, make a strong case that gold is inversely correlated to the dollar. And they even put up charts. I can name a few. Ian McAvity, for one, he can take a chart of the dollar and then flip it around on one of those overhead projector screens, which you have to be about mice even know what those are, and then overlay it on a gold chart, and they almost overlay. So you can make a strong case that the dollar and gold are inversely correlated. But really, from my work and what I studied and from people that have been before me, it's really a reflection on overall economic health. If we had a inflationary boom, not a hyperinflationary boom, and things looked better or appeared better, or even if not, you could just pump up the economy with these dollars coming in, and you could certainly do what he has suggested here. Now, do I agree with that or not? I think it's more likely that you would see what the main trend is, and gold is the most negatively correlated asset to the stock market. But that doesn't mean day-to-day, minute-to-minute, week-to-week. And let me just back up a little bit and mention a name here, and that's David Ben Simon. And David wrote a book, I forget the name of it, but it's a financial publication. It was like a $750 book. And he uses a very similar strategy to what I think Martin Armstrong does. And I don't want to misstate anything because Martin isn't here to speak for himself. So it's my interpretation, and uh, I may be misstating this. But he uses this pi factor, this golden ratio, I think it is. And what it does is it shows the movement of gold and silver and what their ultimate tops are. And in that, he says that the overall markets will pretty much all be going up. And Robert Prechter's made that argument as well, all these markets moving together. So it it has happened. Could it happen again? Yes. Do I think it will happen? I would be more inclined to see the dollar neutral to down as the stock market goes up and goes, goes up even more, and then a breakaway at some point. So I don't know what the time frame is here. So let me just pause a second and gather my thoughts and just say that, yeah, you could see what he's saying, the dollar going higher, the stock market going higher as gold rebuilds its base and comes back up and silver rebuilds its base and comes back up. And as far as hyperinflation, I agree. I do not see hyperinflation. I see inflation, which we have, although it's certainly not noted by the government's statistics. But I would argue that the inflation rate is far higher than what is stated in the official figures. 
And secondly, I think that you'll start seeing some of the money pour into the mainstream economy. Right now, all of the money that's been, you could say, printed, electronic digit money that's been pushed out in the system is sitting in the bank's balance sheets. It really hasn't gone out into new loans. And even uh, wealthy corporations are sitting on a great deal of cash. So if or when that cash starts to move in the economy, it's got to go somewhere. Well, gold is a very small market, uh, silver even smaller, but the stock market is a pretty vast market, and the currency markets are huge. So that money, if it's released, in other words, the banks start to loan it out into the market, certainly you can make that argument. So do I agree? Somewhat. The one that I'm most certain about is the, is the gold-silver situation. I think in the, there were pretty much in agreement, although I don't know exactly what his curve looks like. And I don't know, no one knows the market. I mean, it's going to do what it's going to do. But I see it basing and moving higher, and it would be a good time to be in gold from this point all the way to the end, but you're not going to get the huge gains. I'll restate something I've said on other programs, and that is the easy money's been made. The money that's been made from the early 2000s up until, say, the 2011 peak in silver, that was fairly easy. We were in a bull market, and, you know, of course, it's very volatile, I admit that, but that was the big leg that was fairly easy just to buy and hold all the way through, and if you're lucky enough to get out the top, then great. The big money is ahead of us. Now, what I mean by big money is rapidly increasing appreciation, especially in the mining stocks. But it's going to be tricky because what happens is it becomes a feeding frenzy. It becomes a manic, panic, buying frenzy. And anyone that's thinking outside of the box, if it can only go higher and there's no tomorrow and gold's going to pick a number, zero, you know, one, zero, 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 I mean, things just get absurd. And that's what happens at market tops. It's really hard to stay cool, calm, and collected say, no, this is overvalued. We're going to take some money off the table. So that's what I'm looking for, again, in the same time frame as him. So you're basically in agreement with Martin Armstrong, but not necessarily aligning yourself with noted hyperinflationist John Williams. The only argument I have with John, I believe, is statistics. And it depends how you define hyperinflation, but advanced capital markets have bonds, and that's what we have. And right now, interest rates are going up, and the Fed doesn't really have much control as most people think. The Fed is worried that the interest rates are going up. In fact, Ben Simon talks about that in his book. And... As those interest rates go up, bond prices go down. So that's deflationary. So that takes money out of the system more or less. In other words, if you have to cash your bonds out, you're going to get less money paid for them at a $1,000 face value. If interest rates keep going up and up and up, you might get 900 for it or 800 for it or 700 for it or whatever. So that is a counterbalance to the hyperinflationary argument. And that's really what happened in 1980. People say, well, gold couldn't go up as interest rates rise. Well, that's not true. Gold went up during the interest rates rising until Volcker moved them up at such a rapid rate, and they were, and real interest rates became positive. So let's define that quickly. If the true inflation rate is like 9% or so, I think what John Williams says, then you have to get real interest rates to 11 or 12 before the real rate is a positive 2%. So how do you get the positive 2%? If you have a 10% inflation rate and a 12% yield, now the real rate back to you is 2% because you have to subtract out the true inflation rate. So these are concepts that I think a lot of our listeners are aware of. Some aren't. It takes a little bit of work and study, and if you don't understand it, you probably would like to read Martin Armstrong's work, maybe read some of mine, but that's the basis of it. So you could see gold continue to go up as interest rates go to you know 3%, 4%, 5%. So, geez, gold's going up, well, interest rates are going up, and the reason is yes, because the real rate is not positive yet. It looks positive if you don't know what's really going on in the economy and how to really measure things. But if you understand it, and that's what Volcker did 
to stop the gold market. He basically slammed the brakes on when he put interest rates up over 17%. When interest rates go up like that or coming close to going up like that, it's often not a bad sign for the economy, is it? Well, it depends. First of all, the market should determine interest rates. And then then you're going to have an economy that's more free market. The market's allowed without any interference to determine what interest rates are. Then you're going to, the market will balance what the true cost of money is. But when you have a banking consortium that can dictate what the cost of money is, it distorts things greatly, and that's what we've had. You have huge misallocations of capital. So since we've had that for so long, you've got these huge misallocations, and some of this money doesn't know where to go, so it goes you know, wherever it can. It goes in the housing market, it goes in, it creates a bubble, and then that bursts, it goes in the tech thing, it goes but going into bonds. I mean, bonds are the biggest bubble that's out there, and then that one's starting, there's a pinprick in the bond market right now because interest rates are going up. So is it a good thing? Interest rates, I'm neutral on it if the market determines them. If you put them up too high, then it chokes off all economic activity other than people that have money that they can push in and save it. In other words, the best move you could have made in the last bull market in gold was to sell it at the top or near the top. So say you got out at 700 and buy the 30-year bond and you know yielding like 17%. And then as interest rates came down, those bond prices went up. So, I mean, that was the sweetest deal on the planet. For 30 years, you were getting a 17% yield, and the value of your bonds just kept increasing, 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 increasing. That trade has ended. It's been a 30-year wonder bar. I mean, that's been the best thing you could have done. But that day, it's ended as far as I'm concerned. So now, you know, what do you do? Well, you study, you educate yourself, you diversify, and you stay nimble, be flexible. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Xchera Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol XAG.V. Xchera is a Toronto-based resource company, and their primary project is the Bilbao Silver-Zinc-Lead-Copper Deposit, situated in the Panfio Natera district of Zacatecas, Mexico, approximately 50 kilometers south of the state capital of Zacatecas, where Xchera is currently completing a bankable feasibility study. Between the company's Bilbao, Laguna, and Panfio projects, Xterra has a resource of 100 million silver equivalent ounces, including 33 million ounces silver in 43101 compliant resource. Zacatecas is a well-known mining district with infrastructure in place. Mining opportunities are both open pit and underground. There are no significant environmental issues and there is an available local workforce there as well as goods and services for development of the projects. You can find a full investor prospectus on Xterra's website. Just log on to xterra.ca or find their logo and click through on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. And we're back. We touched on mining stocks a few minutes ago. We're pulling into September very quickly. Everyone will be returning from vacations. The summer is ending. What are some possible good moves for subscribers and listeners to make before Labor Day rolls in? Well, the HUI, the XAU, are starting to outperform the metals, and this is something you look for to confirm the bottom. So I think the bottom's in. I've called it and said on your show before. And really, well-chosen mining equities, I think, are really going to be the place to be. It doesn't negate what I've always said, and that is you should have real metal first before you buy any mining shares. But assuming you do or you're going to do that, then I think the mining shares carefully selected are really the way to go. And again, at the end of the market where you get this manic panic frenzy buying I talked about a moment ago, at that point in time, it doesn't matter what stock you buy. Not that that means you should buy any stock willy-nilly, but at that time when the public wakes up to the gold and silver story and panics into the market, any stock with gold or silver in its name will 
fly for a very brief time. That's what I said. The big money is ahead, but you've got to be careful. I watched it in the last market. I think it'll happen in this market and make history books because there'll be so much of it going on for a very brief period. So quick example, at the end of the last bull market, a friend of mine bought a stock that was Golden Knight, I think was the name of it. It was on the Amex exchange. It was a $2 stock. It was $4 about a week later during the manic panic buying phase. He sold it for a quick double in a week. Then he did the research. It was not a gold company at all. It was a women's lingerie company. So this is what happens in these manic panic buying frenzies is anything with gold or silver in its name. So any stock that's around, but the caveat is you don't want to buy any cheap stock now necessarily unless it's really well researched because a lot of these stocks still with the next couple of years as we work through this, this overhead resistance that we have in both gold and silver, it'll take some time in my view. Some of these companies probably don't have the capital to sustain the next two years. A lot of them do. You just want to choose wisely. And lastly, David, educate our new listeners about the Morgan Report. Well, because we focus on money, metals, and mining, and we devote it to you, which means you are the focus of every report. Every time that we sit down and write any report, we have you as our best interest. We invest right along with you. When the time comes to make a decision, we're right there with you. And we're not perfect, but we certainly have your interests as well as ours in hand when we write the reports. And subscribers do at the second level, the basic plus level, where this guy wrote in, you have the opportunity to ask questions like this, and we guarantee an answer. Not maybe the answer you want, but we'll give you an answer. David, once again, a great segment. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been chatting with David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The preceding segment has been sponsored by Xchair Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol XAG.V. Xchair plans to become a mid-tier producer of silver and base metals through the development of its Bilbao deposit located in the central Mexican mineral belt in the state of Zacatecas, as well as through additional exploration and acquisition opportunities. Find Xchair on the web at xchair.ca. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Excalibur Resources Limited, trading on the CNSX as XBR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EXCFF. Excalibur Resources is a Toronto-based emerging junior gold producer focused on the acquisition, investment, and development of small gold and silver mines that include a gold mine currently producing in Zacatecas, Mexico. Dudley Baker is the editor of CommonStockWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's wonderful to be back, Ellis. We're excited to have a new sponsor for your segment on my show. Excalibur Resources Limited. They have a project not far from you in Mexico. We're excited that they're on the Ellis Martin Report. You know, this is really cool. So Excalibur, it's been on my radar screen for quite some time. Another uh, friend, Ed Skoda, that lives here in Mexico, so a mining analyst. And so we've talked for several months about making a site visit 
And so this is just a great coincidence here. And so really look forward to, it could happen as early as next week, uh, the next one to two weeks, to get a site visit. Literally here in Mexico, I'm about three-hour drive over to the properties. I'm just looking forward to getting more information and meeting Tim Gallagher, correct? That's the president of the company. And yes. so excited about, number one, the markets, the new potential stock opportunity here with Excalibur and helping them spread their story out here to the uh, junior mining investors. And so uh, it, it's pretty cool. Now, we've seen some definite upward movement in the resource sector in the last couple of weeks after a lean summer, and then that bump we had in mid-July. Are you getting more entrenched, or are you just glad that some of your positions are recovering? Hell, I'm excited. Entrenched, I don't know. I mean, I'm finding myself sending more money to my brokerage account so I can buy more stock. That's how entrenched I am. I'm basically 100% entrenched all the time. I love this sector. Obviously, we've been all beaten up really, really, really bad. But, you know, not everybody in the business. I know the companies are are hurting. Share prices are down. Most of management is probably disappointed. I think probably, uh, again, back with our sponsor, Excalibur, those shares are probably held up about as well as anybody could, could expect in this nasty, nasty market that we've had. But, no, I'm excited about where we're going. We've got an incredible market going on in gold and silver as we speak. You know, recording this on Friday, we got gold up, you know, $25, $26. We're now just below this $1,400 level, and silver is uh, is going to be, you know, almost bumping the 24 Things are looking good to me. It feels good. And yes, all of our share prices are coming up, and that's exciting. I believe we'll have nothing more than the same old, same old, being more increases coming. I think the big downturn is over. Always be little dips back down for a little more consolidation, but I feel really good about where we're going. So you've been looking for this for the past year. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all wanted this storm to end, right? And I think it it has ended. But as resource investors, we're living for the day of substantially higher prices. And and obviously, all the companies, uh, this is what they need. If they do need to raise some funds, you need higher share prices. Tough to raise money at three cents, five cents, or even 10 cents a share. You know, you got to get a little excitement going here. As we get a a firmer footing in all these markets and higher share prices, everybody's going to feel better. I'm sure the institutional boys, you know, the spots of the world are always looking for new places to put money. It'll be a a much better feel-good situation here. I like where we're at, and I sure like where we're going. We've just seen some poor numbers for new home sales here in the U.S., and that's generally a big economic driver, and perhaps that's just heating up the precious metals markets a bit. Are we going to see anything parabolic or just steady growth for the next two years? Again, staying with the resource, I mean, it's like uh, right now... I would not want to see anything parabolic, okay? What I think coming off of this nasty decline that we've had, we want a nice, steady, firm increase in gold and silver and obviously in share prices. We want a parabolic move, but I'd love to see that about a year and a half to two years down the road. You know, several things are aligning, at least different people that I follow in the business. Let's just say 2016, so probably the first quarter to first half of 2016. Now, we're inside of, say, three years. You know, we won't mention any names, but I find it interesting when we get several people starting to hone in on this time period. If we're going to have a parabolic move, it's going to be heading into that say, first quarter of 2016. So I wouldn't want to see it now, I mean, because it, it'll wear itself out. We don't want to go parabolic straight back to 1900 because then we know what's going to happen. We're going to plunge back down for several hundred dollars an ounce at least. So I'd rather say steady she goes, 
I have no idea where we could be by the end of the year, but the base is in. Why couldn't we easily be back to that 1500 in the 15 to 1600 range on goals? Everybody would sure feel much, much better at year end if that happens. And then early next year, we take out the old highs and get something going here. But, you know, what everybody always said, with a lot of the parabolic moves, so much of that move, it'll come in the last 10 to 20 percent of that market movement. And it's almost like if this would happen in this, say, first quarter or so of 2016, in essence, that's about the last 10 percent. If we go back and say this bull market started in, in September 2001, and then you take it into 2016, so with the 15 years or so length, this would be putting that parabolic move right at the tail end and right at that last 10 to 15 percent of the time. Me personally, I mean, you know, I've got a lot of subscribers around the world with our service, but I've got a big portfolio personally myself. We all are really invested in this sector, and we want it to all be based more than just on hope, right? <laughs> I mean, hope is great, but it's like at the end of the day, we can't spend that hope. It is interesting that I follow a lot of different 20-plus analysts, so I get a lot of different feedback and different opinions. I'm starting to feel good myself about this uh, early 2016. What happens with the parabolic move at the end of the cycle? Doesn't that signify a bubble? Well, nothing goes on forever, right? Whether it's uh, in the financial markets or in the states, you know, with the Dow and the S&P, or whether we're in the gold stocks. I think all of us can appreciate here as resource investors, it's like these up moves are wonderful. The down moves just rip your heart out and really get nasty, nasty, nasty. All of us as investors now have to get smart enough so that we do not continue to do this. And especially those of us as we get older is like, hell, we may not be here for the next damn cycle. We got to get smarter. And so to me personally, if we're rocking and rolling into 2016, and I'm talking serious stuff, it's going to be time to really be thinking about taking some serious money off of the table. Each one of us is an investor, said so that's easy to do. If you, as the president of a company, of a mining company, obviously you're going to be there. You're going to have to, you know, in this price of gold and silver and everything's uh, it's just fluctuating on a daily basis. So, my God, if we go to 3000 4000 5000 on gold, okay, how do you personally play it? as the president of the company. Everybody has a different situation. Investors got to deal with their situation. The president of the company has got to deal with it. If you've got a, a drilling company, uh, yeah, I visited with my good friend, uh, Roger Gerard yesterday afternoon in Guadalajara, and he's got like 30 some odd drilling rigs. And so he again has a little different perspective on the business. And he's always going to have to keep his equipment working, but we have to make the right decisions for us. And basically me as Let's say with my service, with Common Stock Warrants, and with my personal portfolio, and I've got to make the right decision for me and for my subscribers when that day comes. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is proudly sponsored by Excalibur Resources Limited. Excalibur Resources is one of the best-performing mining companies trading on CNSX under the symbol XBR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EXCFF. Excalibur is focused on the acquisition, investment, and development of small gold and silver mines. It's a unique strategy called micro-mining, seeking shallow, high-grade, existing, and historic gold deposits, the best strategy in recently depressed markets. The company is focused on the Cataneva Gold Project in the Pinos Bonanza Gold District in Zacatecas, Mexico. 
Initial production in the Monera Cantoneva mine is about 50 tons per day with one shift and is expected to expand to 150 tons per day with three shifts. Excalibur has a stated goal to pay dividends, and with a 16 cent share price, the intended yield would be 6.25%. Learn more about Excalibur Resources by visiting their website, excaliburresources.ca, or be sure to click on the Excalibur logo on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. And we're back. Speaking of your subscribers, tell us about your service and CommonStockWarrants.com. Well, really excited. We've done a lot of growing in the last two months. Greatly took advantage of, let's say, a slow point in the markets, etc. We've expanded, listeners may recall the old name of Precious Metals Warrants, where we only were tracking the warrants in the Canadian markets on the resource sector. Really, under our new name of Common Stock Warrants, we're in the United States, so we've got all of the warrants that are trading in the United States, all industries, all sectors, banks, autos, biotechs, everything. Some really cool opportunities out there in the U.S. market. Uh, even in the banks, we get the leverage calculations that look wonderful on some of these long-term warrants. In the Canadian market, we again expanded into all sectors. So it's really cool that we've probably got, I'm guessing now, about 190, 190 companies that have warrants that are trading U.S. and Canada. And so we provide all this information basically in a database, all the leverage calculations that we do, of course, all the detail of the expiration date, uh, exercise price of the warrants, and all of this good stuff. It's an incredible resource for investors. And then for another piece of the service, if somebody really wants to know, so who's this guy, Dudley Baker, and what's he doing? And if they want to follow me or see what I'm doing, they can do so in the service. I do an audio every Thursday evening on that, kind of recapping the markets for the week and kind of showcase anything that I've deemed to be relevant here in roughly a 10 to 12 minute little uh, audio update each week. So we've, like most of the newsletter writers, have weathered the storm. We're excited to get the slow patch behind us. It's only natural, you know, when the markets turn down, let's say subscribers to any service say, well, why do I need you anymore, Dudley? I mean, it's like, <laughs> this is a terrible time. So I understand that. I get it. We lost a few subscribers, but we have people coming back right now. They sense that the bottom's in. They're starting to get excited again and we're really looking forward to the ride. We're going to be here for a good while, and we look forward to it. Well, Dudley, it's great to hear some new excitement in your voice. It portends well for the coming weeks and months, hopefully. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Great to be with you, Ellis. I've been speaking with analyst and newsletter writer Dudley Baker. His website is commonstockwarrants.com. Dudley Baker is a shareholder of sponsor Excalibur Resources Limited. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the Ellismart Report in its entirety on iTunes. The preceding segment has been sponsored by Excalibur Resources Limited, trading on the CNSX as XBR and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as EXCFF. Excalibur Resources is a Toronto-based emerging junior gold producer focused on the acquisition, investment, and development of small gold and silver mines that include a gold mine currently producing in Zacatecas, Mexico. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website. That's ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. Uh-oh. 
Miles. Good to be with you again. Since we last spoke, you released a definitive feasibility study concerning the Dubbo Zirconia project. Would you care to bring us up to date? Yes, certainly. It was a, a fairly lengthy and in-depth study of the project, and we took into account all of the factors and all of the factors affecting the, the rare metal and rare earth industry at this stage. But the fundamentals are we came out with a capital cost of about $990 million, their Australian dollars, I should add, and through that we generate a revenue of about 500 million a year against operating cost of around 200 million a year so we have a 300 million dollar cash flow per annum now we've only based the initial financial model on a 20-year life but the resource that we have there is really capable of, of operating for 80 years or even 100 years so it's a it's a long life big resource but financially it tended to focus on the first 20 years so we were very very happy with that result it shows how financially robust the project is and that followed on many years of hard work to show how technically robust the project is. So for about $990 million after three years or so, you've covered the cost of a project with a lifetime of as little as 20 and as much as 100 years with what will bring you a net of about $300 million a year. That seems like a very insignificant investment for the return you're getting, although it's almost a billion dollars and that's not an insignificant amount. You're completely correct there and we always recognise that a billion dollars is a lot of money, especially for a small company. But you're right also that the, the financial result will see a, a capital payback inside four or five years. So it's a very strong project in that sense. But the billion dollars, we've already put in the steps involved to raising that billion dollars and last year we appointed two large banks, Credit Suisse and Sumitomo Matsui Bank, to work with us and work with Petra Capital to help us to put the whole financing package together and that process has started and we've allowed 12 months to get that done so this time next year I'd hope to say that we have project approval from the state government and also we have all our financing in place and it's a big task uh, we certainly recognize that but the strategic value of the project helps that process I and mean, by strategic I mean the metals that we will produce certainly has strategic value to a number of countries and I can here single out both Japan and Korea for example a very active looking for alternate sources of supply strategic metals to, to what they currently get from China. So there's funding available from sources like that. There's also funding available from other international entities that'll help us put that billion dollars together. Well, really, the risk is low as far as that is concerned, considering you have memorandums of understanding for offtake with at least four industrial entities in Asia. We also, of course, have one with a European metal alloy manufacturer for our niobium output, and, and that deal, basically, uh, they'll help us with the technology to produce high-quality ferro-niobium, which they will then use themselves and also sell into the European market. So it gives us a bit of diversity because otherwise uh, all of the product is sort of fundamentally heading into Asia. At this stage, places like Japan and Korea and probably India. Also, we are seeing for the first time quite a bit of interest out of China, which surprised me a little bit because China's a big producer of rare earths and a big producer of zirconium chemicals. And for us to be able to look at selling some of our materials back into China was a little bit of a surprise. But certainly there's a changing set of circumstances in China as well. So it's good to open up other potential markets. Well, in previous conversations, you ruled out China, at least for the foreseeable future, but it seems that strategy is changing. It is. As I said before, it was a bit of a surprise, but it came about after one of our marketing guys was in China, and he came back quite enthusiastic about the level of interest. So we have to say we're not changing our tact. We're always looking for places to sell our products, but that was a pleasant surprise. What are some of the uses for zirconium and niobium? Just 
start with zirconium first of all because it's a very diverse applications. A lot of specialist ceramic applications and probably the most well-known one is in your car or your vehicle exhaust system. There's a sort of can-looking type object right at the very end of the car exhaust. That's the catalytic converter which uh, takes out all the nasty gases that are coming out of the engine. And in each of those there's about a half a kilogram of zirconia ceramic and you often hear about platinum palladium in that component but they do forget to tell you there's a, a major zirconia component as well and that's currently about 30 to 40 percent of the whole zirconia market. And then there's many other applications in drying agents in paints and other general drying agents. Ceramic tiles for example Zirconia is often used as the glaze and the colouring of a, on the top of the tiles. And then the final end result is zirconium metal, which is the metal that holds the enriched fuel in place in the nuclear reactor. Because uh, zirconium is the only metal that can withstand the temperatures and the uh, neutron bombardment that you get in a reactor. So it's a small but very high value end part of the business. Niobium's a little bit different. It's more focused in probably 90% ends up in the steel industry in some way. Traditionally, niobium steels have been used for pipelines, bridges where you need high strength and low weight. But what we have seen maybe five years or more or so ago, the auto industry started to pick up on the niobium steel. And what it does, is a very small amount of niobium, a few dollars worth of niobium in the steel of a vehicle chassis lightens it by about 10%. And that's all that we get all the emissions minimisation and fuel efficiencies with the lighter of the vehicle without any loss of strength. They're the two, the broad applications of, of niobium and generally the zirconium industry is an extremely diverse business. But as long as men and women roam the planet, there's going to be a market for automobiles. And let's take a look at China, for instance. That's a market where only 3 in 10 individuals have an automobile with 1.3 billion people, and that's rapidly advancing. Your market is endless. Quite right, again, for China and again, India is a... Is a following in very similar path and it's not only the three out of ten but if you look at the size of the populations of both those countries I think China's 1.3 billion and India's 1.1 billion well if you take that percentage you end up with a large large number of automobiles uh, that are going to require a lot of components and that is across the board here it's zirconium niobium and of course all the rare earths that get used in autos these days so if you're going to be a mining company in this market you'd want to be alkane resources wouldn't you well it's probably a pretty good way to put it actually I, I quite like that concept and uh, yeah look we, we do believe we're in, we're in pretty good shape uh, we've got substantial cash resources in the bank we're building and developing our latest gold project which we'll be producing next year and, and having cash flow from that and then following on behind is the very large Dubbo Zirconia project so yeah we would like to believe we're in a very very good position and wait there's more the Tommy Gold project that you alluded to I guess compared to the Dubbo Zirconia project it's small but compare that to most other junior gold companies out there and it's not small you're going into production in just a few months again that's correct I mean it, it's a hundred million dollar investment to generate around 30 million dollars a year current spot prices of gold about 30 million dollars a year 10-year project life we see at this stage again absolutely it's, it's not a big project in any terms but it's a cash flow it's a, it's a we call it our bread and butter business it'll sit behind us sit behind everything else we do that cash coming in enables us to keep doing other things and obviously keep the company going doing all the things it has to do corporately also to keep exploring I mean you know the blood of any mining company is, is having a project pipeline bring new projects on the stream we're not talking large amounts of money but just enough for these projects to keep flowing on once Dubbo's up and running in say four or five years time maybe there's another project another gold or a gold copper project sitting behind it ready to come on stream as well so that all leads us to sort of the concept of a large cash flow business uh, 
that'll enable us to generate profits and again hopefully pay dividends and that's always been the strategy so Tommingley sort of is the building block of the foundation of which the big projects like Dubbo and other projects will follow on. This sounds like nothing but good news during the entire course of this interview. The caveat is the market right now. It's tough all over. Rare earths, rare metals, gold. It's just been a struggle. But yet your position much better than 95% of the other junior miners right now. What are you saying to your current shareholders and your potential shareholders, keeping in mind that you yourself are a shareholder? Yeah, again, very good observation. And you know, we would currently describe ourselves as being in the in the quadruple whammy. I mean, we fit in. We're a junior resource company, which have been hammered in the market. We're a gold company. We've been hammered in the market. We're a rare metal, rare earth company. We've been hammered in the market. I think I'm not sure what the fourth one is now. But yeah, generally, there's just a whole range of negative sentiment and when the market gets into this negative sentiment even having really good projects having the cash in the bank doesn't really seem to account for much so all we say to our shareholders is look hang in there we're very comfortable and confident things will change probably not this year but maybe as we roll into 2014 and then for potential investors is to look at it and say well you know right now the, the company's got a market capitalization about 170 million dollars we've probably got 120 million dollars in cash in the bank you know, a new gold project coming on stream it is significantly undervalued i guess the you know the judgment that people have to make is when do you buy i mean i can't put a time on that other than to say i think over the next couple of months is a very good time that uh, for, for buying opportunity i just can't believe the price will continue to go down but in this market you just don't know it's interesting because most people buy in when the market is high. It's just the nature of the Correct. condition. Yeah. But the smartest and the wealthiest people, they get in when no one else is really looking. That's exactly right. If we all had that ability to pick the bottom of the market, we'd probably all be retired and living in some exotic tropical island somewhere. So I haven't quite mastered that yet. But it's an interesting thing to be able to try and predict where the bottom might be. Uh, hopefully it is somewhere now and over the next couple of months. And then we'll, we'll see a general return, not just an alkane, but a general return back into the resources sector. You're an Australian-based company, but you do trade on the prestigious OTCQX exchange here in the U.S. We do, and certainly ANKLY is our, our trading ticker. Um, and, you know, we've certainly done that with a view to attracting the market in the U.S. to invest in the company if they don't want to come you know, via the international broking system that we have these days, but certainly that opportunity is there in the U.S. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Oh, thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, president of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Greg Johnson, the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. Prophecy Platinum trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Prophecy Platinum is a mining company focused on the acquisition and development of Platinum Group Metals, PGM projects, in politically stable, mining-friendly jurisdictions. Prophecy's 100% owned Wellgreen property is one of the world's largest underdeveloped nickel sulfide projects with a very unique platinum and palladium resource that creates very compelling economics, economics that you'll hear about in this interview. 
You'll also hear about Prophecy's near-production Shakespeare Project, a nickel project near Sudbury, Ontario. Mr. Johnson has a long history in the mining sector, beginning with Placerdome, now Barrick Gold. He was a co-founder of widely successful Nova Gold and most recently helmed South American Silver. Greg, welcome back to the program. Well, it's nice to be back. Thank you. For our new listeners, if you don't mind, give us a brief summary of Prophecy Platinum. Well, Prophecy Platinum is a development stage, platinum palladium focused exploration development company. And we have two projects in Canada, a world-class scale open pitable deposit up in the Yukon called Wellgreen, and then a second project called Shakespeare that's located in the Sudbury Mining District, which is the largest regional producing area in North America for platinum and palladium. My experience with platinum and palladium, and I've been covering them on and off for about 15 years now, relates directly to the automotive industry and catalytic converters. Do you see any change in that demand for catalytic converters as automobiles become more quote-unquote green? In terms of a change in demand relative to improving or increasing environmental requirements and regulations, over time, the trend has been towards a greater amount of platinum and palladium, which have the catalytic activity to basically eliminate the smog and the pollutants that are coming out of the exhaust. Over time, we've seen the quantity of those metals go up in order to meet higher standards. The industry has been able to achieve some reductions, so better efficiency of the use of those metals. But we would expect that the trend will continue, particularly in the developing world where pollution has become, particularly smog, has become such an issue. China and India would be good examples where they are going to be starting to adopt more stringent standards, which would mean more catalytic converters, not just in the cities, but also in the countryside. And with the rapid increase in the market for automobiles anyways in those countries, already China is the same size market for automobiles as the United States. There's going to be, we believe, significant growth and increase in demand for particularly platinum and palladium. Even though many of us now see China as this great industrial power, compared to the U.S., there are fewer cars on the road per capita, much fewer. There's a great deal of area for growth in the automotive arena in China. Yeah, no, it's really striking. In fact, there was a a relatively recent report by Fidelity looking at automobile growth in various countries around the world. And they took a look at, in that study, some data that was put together by the World Bank that looked at the number of automobiles per 100 drivers in various countries. And as you can imagine, the United States was near the top of that at about 90 vehicles per 100 drivers, and much of Europe was in the same area. And the reference line they were using was GDP per capita, so kind of a wealth factor. And what was striking is even though the Chinese market is as large in total vehicles as the United States, China has huge catch-up potential in terms of where they sit on that curve. Currently, you know, it was showing in that study about three cars per hundred drivers, and their GDP per capita would suggest more like 10 would be uh, if they were in trend with the other countries around the world based on GDP per capita. And so just the sheer catch-up to where they probably should be anyways, plus the growth potential as they become a more mature developed economy is striking in terms of the number of vehicles that it's likely looking at. And because their environmental standards are increasing so much to deal with their smog and pollution issues, uh, I think this is going to be a huge boom for uh, platinum and palladium consumption, which is really the only application for catalytic converters for eliminating those pollutants. And car sales here in the U.S. have gone up around 12% recently, at least they have with Ford, so there's no shortage of demand here either. 
been surprising. I think the strength in North America, Europe has been weaker. Uh, they continue to mull around, and so more vehicles in Europe are diesel, and so that diesel engines require more platinum in their catalytic converters, so it's actually had an impact on the platinum market. It's been not as strong growth. Palladium has been by far the best-performing metal in the mining space. Platinum was second to that, and it's been mostly held back by that sluggish European automobile sector. We're seeing some occasional spikes in volatility in the platinum and palladium prices. What do you attribute that to? Well, because of the concentration of production, particularly out of South Africa, about 75% of the world's platinum and palladium comes out of South Africa. And in fact, if you add up Southern Africa and Russia, it's over 90% of the world's production. There are a number of really structural features which make it a challenge for the South African mining industry to be able to maintain production. Production for platinum peaked in 2006 and for palladium mining production peaked in 2004 and it's been falling in both metals since that point. In fact, if we look back over the last six or seven years, production's been falling at two to three percent a year on average. And last year was a huge drop out of uh, South Africa. A lot of that's being driven by social unrest, strong labor unions who have been staging strikes and, and other events, and the sheer fact that the sector, because these mines down in South Africa are very deep, they're narrow horizons, which means your costs are high, you're, you're not really able to mechanize the mining. And because of the depth they're mining at a kilometer or a kilometer and a half depth, typically in these mines. Their cost structure is very high. In fact, it's been estimated that 70% of the mining industry for platinum, which is probably primarily these deep South African mines, are not producing an ounce of platinum at their all-in cost of production. And what that effectively means is you've got a sector that's just not doing well companies are not going to be reinvesting into maintenance, into expansion. They're certainly not going to be developing new projects with that. And because of the inherent lag in the mining industry anyways, in terms of being able to bring new production, because it it takes so much capital and time to be able to bring new mines on, this could be setting up a situation very similar to what we saw in silver a few years ago, when the price of silver was around $5 an ounce, and the producers were not making money and not reinvesting in production. I think that's around the time that Warren Buffett took that huge stake in physical silver. And sure enough, a few years later, we saw that lack of reinvestment in the sector as demand continued to grow, which it typically does in these industrial metals over time with population growth and industrialization in the third world. We saw the silver price rise to the teens, the 20s, the 30s, and eventually hit $50 an ounce uh, before backing off a bit. Now it's currently in the $20 to $30 range. But we could see a similar development in platinum and palladium because of the falling production and increasing demand that we're seeing currently. And so we're seeing more and more investors shift their strategy into platinum and palladium, correct? Yeah, I think a lot of people are they're cautious on gold. They've seen the correction in gold. I think that's uh, shaken some investors a bit. Gold may take a little while to further consolidate before moving up. A lot of interest has shifted to platinum and palladium because the fundamentals are so much stronger, because they are a combination of industrial and investment use, but dominantly industrial, and particularly the single largest use for both platinum and palladium is catalytic converters, which is such a strong growth market. Well, with production costs of near $1,700 an ounce in South Africa and a spot price of near $1,500 an ounce, are the majors turning to the politically stable and economically more friendly Canadian Yukon? 
Yeah, there's no question that major producers are going to have to be looking at where they can diversify their production if they've got these issues of labor and rising energy prices and social unrest in, in their key production areas. And Zimbabwe has also thrown in nationalization to, into the mix just for <laughs> good measure. The challenge has been that that's been the focus of the industry in that area, and that is a very enriched area. It's been one of the primary producers. There hasn't been a lot of exploration outside of those regions, Southern Africa and Russia. I think there will be, but this is a situation where right now where there's very few development stage projects even out there to be looked at. Ours up in the Yukon is one of the projects that with 7 million ounces, which is definitely world-class in scale already, it really stands out as a project that's unusual because it's also amenable to low-cost open pit mining production our cost structure is going to be much, much lower than these deep underground mines. And so, you know, we could have one of the lowest cost producers in the world. And the other benefit of open pit mining is that it's very scalable. You can build these projects at different scales and be able to increase production. And with a deposit this large and with highway access to the project and other infrastructure that's needed for development, this could be a a very promising project, certainly for our company, but also for larger companies that might be interested in looking at acquisitions in the space. With the Chinese buying up as much of the world's commodities, especially with regard to precious metals, base metals, rare earths, etc. Why wouldn't they be buying up what they need in platinum and palladium from you? Yeah, no, we're definitely hearing the same thing. In fact, we are hearing from Chinese groups that we're already in discussions with about the project that they are concerned about security of supply of platinum and palladium. They recognize that South Africa is a problem in terms of being able to meet their needs. And with such a large automobile industry, they need a lot of metal. So we are already starting to see that interest in our projects. And because we're at a stage where we've still got a couple more years of work to do before we're being in a position to build them, we may see that interest express itself in investment in the company, financing of the project through to production. Those type of structures could be quite attractive. Well, the end users, from my experience, are doing all sorts of off-take deals now in Australia and Canada, everywhere. The large manufacturers in Asia, they're just going right to these junior mining companies. Yeah, the off-take structure can be really attractive for a company as well because it often means you'll see this group that wants the supply of metal come in and they may buy a percentage of the project and provide with their large balance sheets project financing and attractive interest rates. And so this can be really a win-win for both the development company ourselves as well as the company that's looking to secure supply because it kind of brings the strengths of both groups to the table. The experience and expertise in mining and development on the one side with the project asset and the need for the capital to build these projects which can be fairly capital intensive on the other side. I'm looking at an article, a Sprott's Thoughts article that was forwarded to me and the title of this article is called The Dire State of Platinum and Palladium Miners by David Franklin and in this article the phrase perfect storm was used and I think he was referencing the political issues we were talking about in South Africa and Zimbabwe. Yeah, and the reality is that mining is the type of industry that you just can't build a new factory anywhere you want to, and you can't build that production capacity overnight. So if you have these events, and particularly in the article you referred to from Sprott, where they talk about the multiple areas, you know, the rising cost of labor, the rising cost of energy, the fact they haven't reinvested into the energy grid in South Africa, and nationalization rumors, all of these factors build to have a situation where with so much production concentrated in that area, if you saw some of those mines shut down or major changes in the ability to reach production and maintain production from some of those mines, you could have radical price increases that could be really profound. And then companies outside of South Africa would likely see the equity market respond 
measurably because really it's the underlying value of the metal that drives the valuations typically in the mining stocks. Greg, another great interview. Thanks for joining me. Thanks a lot, Alice. We look forward to being back to update you again soon. I've been speaking with Greg Johnson, president of Prophecy Platinum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NKL and on the OTCQX as PNIKF. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com, or download the entire program on iTunes. I'm Ellis Martin. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. This is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 